Well, good morning, church. I'd like to invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Listen as I read, starting in verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And it is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no man may boast. This morning we're continuing a new series that Pastor Mark began last week. We're calling the Five Solas. And you have to know just a little bit of church history to understand what it is that we mean when we say the five solas. All this year, particularly in the month of October, the Protestant church all around the world will be celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Which means that we're, we're looking back and we're celebrating a specific, particular set of reforms that took place in the Christian church. These are theological reforms that are so important and so crucial to our faith that they shape our identity as a church here, our local church here at Trinity, and our identity as believers in Christ. Today we will consider the second sola, grace alone. Now this is not a history lesson, it's a sermon, but I think it's important to understand a little bit of historical background here because it will help us understand what exactly we mean by the phrase grace alone. I mean, think about it. We Christians, we love grace. We sing amazing grace. I mean, who wouldn't like grace? How could the idea of grace, even grace alone, be controversial among Christians? Well, this is where I think history can be very helpful for us. Because grace is such a common word, and, and the word grace and its close twin mercy, I mean, they show up hundreds of times in the scriptures. I mean, these are words that are thrown around in sermons and in Bible studies and in prayers and in songs all the time that, that the meaning of them can be lost or obscured. I can't help but think of the scene from the classic Christmas movie where the dinner host asks Aunt Bethany to say grace at the dinner table. Aunt Bethany, who was well advanced in years, replied by saying, Grace? Why did you die 30 years ago? See, I think that funny mix-up could serve as a parable for us for how much confusion there is, not only in our culture, but particularly in the churches over grace. Grace is a theme that is so common and so prevalent in the Bible and so common in our Christian traditions that to say that salvation is by grace alone is really to claim very little at all. It's not until you begin to start making precise distinctions about what grace is and how much we depend upon it that you'll really be able to start making a claim, a meaningful claim, about grace. This is what the Reformers did. They, they made distinctions about grace that literally went on to start wars. You see, during the Middle Ages, the, the Roman Catholic Church had drifted away. They'd forgotten and lost the basic teachings of the Bible, especially the essential teachings related to 
to the doctrine of salvation, which is asking the question, how can man be made right with God? Now, you've got to understand that the Roman Catholic Church in that day was, was really the only church in town. And it had drifted so far away that they had lost and forgotten and obscured the gospel of Jesus Christ. History gives us many evidences of these, of these errors. But perhaps the most memorable one is the one that Mark mentioned for us last week. And that is the practice of, of selling indulgences. I mean, think about it. The, the church was literally selling salvation for money. Salvation was, was not a gift, but it became something that you could buy. It became a product that you could peddle and advertise for. So praise God, he raised up a number of courageous men who through their preaching and through their writing, they taught and they clarified what the Bible really said about God and man and salvation and the Bible. And now we summarize those as the five solas. As we heard last week, we heard that sola scriptura, that God's word is the only, it is our highest authority, not the Catholic Church. And as it teaches that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And today we're going to focus on that second sola, grace alone. Now I think it's a common misnomer, especially in today's Protestant circles, to, to misunderstand what Catholics believe about grace. Which means that for our discussion, you can't really understand what the Reformers were reacting to. It's often taught that Catholics teach that people are saved by works, while Protestant churches teach that people are saved by grace. But that's not really a very fair statement. Roman Catholicism does not teach that one is saved by works, apart from the grace of God, but that one is saved by the grace of God. Why was this such a tectonic controversy in the church that we're still talking about this some 500 years later? And plus, I mean, look around. We're not Catholic. This is a Protestant church, right? If Catholics believe that people are saved by the grace of God, then why is it that some pastors were burned alive for believing and preaching this very same thing? Clearly, What the Roman Catholic Church meant by salvation by grace is very different than what Martin Luther and the other Reformers meant by salvation by grace. That's where that all-important little Latin word sola comes in. Grace alone. That's the difference between the Reformers and Rome. You see, the Reformers were convinced that the Bible taught that sinners were saved by grace alone. That is, by the unmerited favor of God alone. That man contributes absolutely nothing to his salvation, but rather it is a gift from God. Salvation is not dependent upon any good work of man. Whether that's going to mass, or whether that's giving alms to the poor, or whether it's making a good decision, or walking down an aisle. None of these things can commend a sinner to the grace of God. Man is dependent upon God's grace alone. 
Salvation is a gift. Man does nothing, and God does everything. Now that's controversial. But the question is, is it biblical? And if it's biblical, do you believe it? Perhaps this is where an illustration could help us. Last night, Haley and I were talking. We were debating over how many times we've moved in the 12 years of our marriage. I counted nine. She counted 10. So we'll go with 10. And my dad has been gracious enough to help me on almost all of those moves. For me, growing up, some of my best memories with my dad are, are working with him. My dad loves to work, and he's a hard worker, and he's always made work fun. And so, so whether it was stacking firewood or whether it was working on a car or picking okra, I mean, if you're trying to, I mean, the only way you can make picking okra fun is if you have a dad that chucks rotten tomatoes at you because picking okra is miserable. But he made even picking okra fun, and he made moving fun. Moving is stressful, but my dad made it fun. Over the years, we somehow developed a, a joke, a habit, where we would be carrying something big together, maybe a piece of furniture, a dresser, or a mattress. And one of us would try to trick the other one into having him carry the heaviest load. Maybe they'd be a, arrange themselves to be at the bottom of the stairs or something like that. But I remember that when we were moving here several years ago, it was a very cold January, and it was very early in the morning, and my dad and I were out moving, and we were still having fun. We were moving this massive king-size mattress, and I was complaining to him how heavy it was. I was trying to pick it up, and I just could not get my end to move. And then I noticed that my dad started laughing at me. He was fracking up. I mean, he... I thought that he was picking up his end, but he wasn't even trying. He was faking it. And so the rest of the day, we were pranking each other, trying to see who could carry the lightest load. We would be carrying a dresser, and I'd try to position myself so that he'd be carrying 80% of the load while I'd be carrying just 20% of the load. And then we'd laugh, and we'd laugh about it. We see, I think this is a helpful illustration of the debate over grace alone. You see, Catholics agree that you have to have God's grace, that is God's help, in order to be saved. But you've got to help too. I mean, God will carry 80% of the dresser, but, but you've got to carry the other 20%. I mean, you've got to bring something to the table. You've got to contribute something. But the Reformers came along and they said, no, God carries the whole dresser. God carries the whole burden of salvation by himself. It is totally God. He moves the dresser for us. Man does not help at all. Salvation is by grace alone, they said. We see, here's what happens. We Protestants, we're like, yes, grace alone. But then we can be tempted practically to fall into the same trap as our Catholic friends. We think, oh, I helped a little bit. I mean, God carried the dresser, no question, but, but I helped a little. I mean, maybe he carried 99%, but but I carried 1%, or we might even say God carried the whole dresser, but I was the one who called him and asked for help, or I booked the moving truck. Each of us has this constant tendency, this innate desire to feel like that we have to contribute just a little bit, to feel useful, to feel needed. I mean, no one wants to show up at a potluck empty-handed, right? Right? We want to contribute a little bit. 
Or perhaps instead of thinking that we've contributed, we'll make a subtle change and we'll, we'll say that we cooperated with God. But salvation is not a cooperative effort. If salvation was a cooperative effort, then God and man would cooperatively share in the glory. I mean, do you see how tricky this becomes? But the question for us is, what does the Bible say? And my prayer is that as our discussion progresses, that this will become more clear for us. But I can go ahead and say that what I think this all boils down to in our text this morning is that when Paul says that we're dead in our trespasses, what does he mean? How dead are we? Or perhaps the question really boils down to verse 8. And how you understand the phrase, it is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. So let's read together Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the inspired word of God. Now there are many texts that speak to God's unilateral work in salvation, but Ephesians chapter 2 is the most prominent In chapter 1, Paul has been richly describing the Father's plan to save sinners. And the key of his emphasis is, is that all of his work, all of this work is to rebound to the praise of his glorious grace. Chapter 1, verse 6. But then in chapter 2, Paul turns to, to start applying these spiritual realities to the lives of the Christians there in Ephesus. And you'll notice that two separate times he makes it clear how sinners are saved. First, in verse 5, by grace you have been saved. And again in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So the question for us this morning is how is the grace of God evident in salvation? How is God's grace on display? How can we see it? How can we understand it? Paul's answer to that question is that if you want to see and understand God's grace, then you have to understand what it means to be dead and what it means to be alive. So let's talk about each of those for just a few minutes. I mean, first of all, we have to ask, who is Paul talk, talking to? Because, I mean, if we can get out of this, we, we want to get out of this condemnation. Who is he talking to? 
Who is he saying used to be dead? Well, he's talking to Christians at Ephesus. Gentiles. Look at verse 1. He says, you were dead. But he also includes himself and all of his fellow Jews. In chapter 2, verse 3, he says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. And just to be sure that he doesn't leave anyone out, he says, like the rest of mankind. So who is dead? In short, Paul says everyone. Every man, every woman, every boy and girl, we are all by our very nature dead. And that includes you and that includes me. But that brings us to the question, I mean, what does it mean to be dead? I mean, clearly, Paul can't be talking about being physically dead. I mean, that wouldn't make sense. Instead, he's referring to a spiritual condition. He says that all are spiritually dead. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, Paul goes on to describe the spiritual deadness with several different descriptions in this text. The first thing he says is that those who are spiritually dead are under condemnation. In verse 1, Paul says that before we were Christ, we were dead in trespasses and sins. You'll notice he uses two different words, both of which are plural. Trespasses and sins. He does this, I believe, to emphasize the totality of sin's dominion over us. We've not only committed individual transgressions that we have multiple times, but we are also sinners by our very identity. That is, we are in our whole person active in defying and refusing God. That from the very beginning of creation, we've been at this. And God made it clear that the penalty for sin is death. In Genesis chapter 3, we read that because of sin, Adam would one day die physically. And in the meantime, he and Eve would be dead spiritually. They were banished outside of the garden, outside and away from the presence of God and the tree of life, the very source of life. So sinners are guilty. And as guilty sinners, we stand wholly accountable before God. But brothers and sisters, it gets worse. To be dead also means that we are enslaved. Verses 2 and 3. That is, we don't serve God. We serve other masters. Paul mentions several. He says first that we serve or we follow the same pattern of the world. Sinners don't follow God. They follow the world. He also says that we're slaves to our flesh. Verse 3. That we lived according to our passions, that our desires, that our, our longings are our, were our highest law. Even if they conflicted with God's law, that we did what we wanted to do. You'll notice specifically that Paul says that, that we carried out the desires of the body and of the mind. That whatever our bodies desired and whatever our minds longed for, that's what we did. You'll notice that this problem includes, Paul specifically includes, our problem with our mind. That, that is that, that even though we're able to make choices, even choices about how we respond to God, the problem is that we're spiritually dead. 
dead dead. That is, we don't respond rightly in our minds to the things of God. We're dead to the things of God. Sinners are enslaved to their own sinful desires. They can't, and they don't, and they won't desire righteous things, according to Romans 8. But instead, they desire sinful things. (laughs) But it gets worse. Paul says that we were also children of wrath, even like the rest of mankind. To be dead means to be under God's wrath. That, That because of sin... We know that God is righteously angry at sinners. That all sinners are standing under the hot and holy anger of God that is hanging by a thread ready to break at any moment with such red hot fury that we cannot even imagine. And none of us escapes this diagnosis. We were all this way by nature. As an heiress is set to inherit a fortune... So children of wrath are set to inherit the wrath of God. So the question remains, how in the world can anyone ever get to God? Well, you can see why many don't accept this teaching. That all humans are spiritually dead to the things of God. So they try to soften the Bible's edges. I mean, we want the Bible... But but it makes us a little uncomfortable sometimes, so we make subtle adjustments. And the way I see it, there are three ways that people tweak this teaching. You could think about it like this, that we are either spiritually well, spiritually sick, or spiritually dead. Well, sick, or dead. Let's think about being well first. This applies generally to folks who are outside of the church that believe that they're basically good. I mean, they basically, they simply reject this teaching. That people are not born sinners. They just make some bad decisions. Or they don't know any better. Or that society corrupted them. Or that they couldn't help it. And since they aren't sinners, they simply need better laws. Or more education. Or social reforms. Or better role models. But as you and I both know, that doesn't work. Laws don't change people. And education is not able to transform the heart. So the most popular position is that people are simply spiritually sick. Maybe even terribly sick. Desperately sick. Perhaps even deathly sick. But not quite dead. These folks believe that people still have the moral ability, just enough goodness, a desire and an ability to respond to God. They think that deep down they can love God, that they can turn to God. So they believe that God appeals to their natural desire for Him, to persuade them, to cooperate them. They, they, they would say, yes, God helps a ton, but when it comes down to it, man pulls the trigger. That God sets up all the dominoes, but man flicks the first domino. For these people, they admit that they're sick, but sick people are in a way better position than dead people. Are they not? Sick people just need medicine. This actually becomes a lot like the Roman Catholic view of grace, where they see God's grace as 
as grace, as infusion, like a good, strong push in the right direction. They view grace the way I often view coffee, right? I can get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, and I can do some stuff, but I'm not much good until I've had a cup of coffee. And so I'm almost totally dependent upon coffee to give me the assistance that I need. My old workplace, there's a sign that hung on the office, which I thought was appropriate. It said, no coffee, no worky. And that's how many of us view God's grace. That we really, really need it, but ultimately it's assistant. It's assistance. It's, it's that magical nudge that sets you off in the right foot. Many folks believe that God has infused them with just enough provenient grace to get them going. So many people actually end up with the lower view of God's saving grace because it's still dependent upon man. I've said it many times here before that many of us are not experiencing spiritual power in our relationship with the Lord because we have such a small view of our sin which leads to a small view of God's grace. And if you don't need much grace, then what's the big deal? What's so amazing about grace? And since sick people aren't dead, they just need some assistance to get to God. They believe that they can and they will cooperate. And so grace becomes a form of divine assistance. The problem with this is that Paul doesn't say that we're sick. He says that we are spiritually dead. And dead people don't assist. They don't cooperate. They don't even help. I mean, I've been to dozens of funerals and every single funeral has pallbearers. Because the dead cannot get from point A to point B. They, they, you can give them a cane, you can give them walkers, you can give them wheelchairs, but it doesn't matter. They must be carried. And brothers and sisters, spiritually speaking, you and I were corpses. And we had been buried for years before we came to Christ. And we had to be carried to get there. So what's the solution? Well, the solution is grace. Thankfully, Paul doesn't stop in verse 3. In verse 4, we read those famous two words, but God. And then again in chapter verse 5, rather, it says that God made us alive together with Christ. You see, dead people don't need to be made better. They don't need to be pushed in the right direction. They don't need to be encouraged. They don't need to be given patient choices. Dead people need to be born again. They need to be resurrected. They need to be given life. And that's exactly what God does. Notice in verses 4 and 5 that God is the one doing all the work. God is the actor God is the actor in verse 4, and then he is the one who, verse 5, made us alive even when we were dead. Who did it? God did it. So according to Paul, how much did you contribute to your salvation? Well, how much did Lazarus contribute to his resurrection? How much did you contribute to your birth? That's how much we contributed. Because salvation is by grace. It's a gift. Sure, you responded in faith, but that's because God gave you faith. It is by grace through faith. 
It is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist, used to say that God has cast a vote for your soul. And that Satan has cast his vote for your soul as well. So you, he would say, have the deciding vote. What will you choose? Will you choose God or will you choose Satan? The problem with that is that it doesn't work. Dead people don't vote. And furthermore, you and I, have we've already voted. And the vote that we cast was a vote for Satan. And that vote got us dead. Paul makes the timing and the order of all this crystal clear. When did this happen? He says it was when, verse 5, we were dead. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. That's when he made us alive together with Christ. So why did God do this? I mean, what, is, what was his motive? Why did he make the dead alive? Well, verse 9 makes it clear that God set it up like this so that no one can boast. God does not save because of works. And he does not save because of really wise spiritual decisions. God saves only because of grace. Otherwise, we would have some grounds to boast. You see, salvation is not a cooperative effort. For then God and man would cooperatively share in the glory. This gets to the ultimate purpose of God in all of this. To show off his grace. God, the architect of salvation, designed it in such a way to make sure that it was all mercy and not works. So that God would get the glory. We see this in verse 7 where it says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. In Romans chapter 9, one of the most neglected chapters of the Bible, Paul illustrates this very controversial point when he was describing how and when God chose Jacob and not Esau. Romans 9 verse 10, he says, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not born, not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. You see, God did this to be sure that no one would be able to boast, that no one would be able to share in His glory. Currently reading a massive historical theology book for school. It's a book that the author said took him more than a decade to write. And he used his graduate students to research and to compile, you know, outlines and rough drafts of chapters. And, and so each chapter of this big book begins with a footnote that says, I'd like to thank student such and such for her help in compiling this chapter. Even though he is the author, the students helped a little bit. So they deserve a footnote. Brothers and sisters, you and I are not even a footnote in our salvation story. Because salvation is a gift. We were saved. We are saved by grace alone. If the story of our salvation was a movie, our name would not even be in the credits. Salvation is by grace alone. You see, grace will only seem amazing to you 
when you come to the end of your moral rope. That is, when you're able to say that there is nothing, nothing in me at all that would make God want me apart from His grace. And so our sin actually serves to highlight and magnify the grace of God. You see, if you think that God loves you because you're pretty good or a little bit desirable, then you can't have a high view of grace because you have a low view of sin. And that's how many of us are living. Some of you have not yet come to the end of your moral ropes. You still cling to a shred of your own righteousness. So let me say to all of you who are here this morning, I gladly and freely proclaim to you salvation as the free gift of God by faith in Jesus Christ. That though you are morally bankrupt and have nothing to offer God, He has set His love upon you. So now come to Him by faith. Repent, turn from your sins, and cry out to Jesus for help that you have absolutely no hope apart from the free grace of Jesus. Turn to Him and be saved. As 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. Praise God. Let us close in prayer.